Today's episode is brought to you by Magic Mind. Flow State now comes in a bottle. Magic Mind. It's the anti-procrastination organic alternative to 5-Hour Energy. You're going to love it. Go to magicmind.co. Use promo code THEO to get 10% off. Today's guest is environmental attorney, author, and president of the Children's Health Defense, to name a few things. Um, He's outspoken. He's, I mean, he just knows so much. He's like, I mean, he's he's just like wandering through a library. Uh, it is my friend, Mr. Robert Kennedy Jr. We didn't have, like, by us, we had a lot of cranes, you know. I actually thought about you a couple weeks ago. I was down in, it was my first time going to um, this place called Yasklowski. It's down, like, like the fishing villages off of, like, New Orleans. It's probably about 30 minutes away. And they pronounce it a little bit different because I think it's, like, super Polish, the word or something. It starts with, like, a couple of different Ys. And so it's, like, it's kind of hard to pronounce. But I got down there, and I saw egrets. I saw cranes. Um... I saw a couple owls, you know, and I actually thought about you because I know that you care about the animals so much and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I've spent a lot of time in the Atchafalaya, which is oh yeah, you know, near where you are, between Baton Rouge and uh, in New Orleans. Yeah, and that's one of the biggest um, staging zones for the migrations of you know the waterfowl and. Um, you know, a lot of the other migratory birds that are about to go down to Latin America. I think it's actually the biggest uh, wetland in North America. It's bigger than bigger than the Everglades. But we started talking, you and I started talking about this because I did Ty- Mike Tyson's... Yeah, hot uh, boxing. Hot boxing. And um, you were asking me how it was, and I, he's very subdued. Um, you know, I, I really, I love him. He's very, very subdued. Um, but we ended up talking a lot about pigeons because he was a pigeon guy. That's how he kind of started. He got a fight. He got in a fight over somebody who stole his pigeon. That's the first time he ever hit anybody. Oh, damn! And that's kind of a famous story. Uh, but he's a pigeon fancier, and I grew up with pigeons. I started racing homing pigeons when I was seven years old. And so was that big? Because I remember I went to the Spy Museum one time in Philadelphia, <laughs> and they had pigeons that had like a little briefcase on their arm. You know, they had pigeon will have like a little. Can you bring that up too, Nick? Mm-hmm. They'll have pigeons that even will have like a little backpack on. You know, and they used to use them for spy work. Yeah, they have. Yes, that's true. And in fact. They used them for, well, of course, they, they've always been a, a military asset because they would use them to communicate, you know, before they had telephones and walkie-talkies. And, in fact, they used them right up into, until World War um, World War One. And and they really use them? Like, if you do it, like, what can you tell a pigeon and, and he'll well, go? Well, you can't tell them anything, but you can. The, the pigeon will always go back to the first place that he saw daylight. So if you, 
if you you know raise a pigeon, if you get if you get an adult pigeon, you buy a pigeon at pigeon auction, uh-huh. and a you know a really big Homer, a classic these days, people pay a million dollars for a, a good Homer. For a good Homer pigeon, please. They rate them by miles. So if you're a thousand mile bird, you know you you're worth a lot of money. Back when I was a kid, we would you know pay a couple. It? Yeah, those are called blue bars. Okay. And those are uh, Hungarians, which is the kind that I used to raise. And we would put them in a a train, and the train with all the other, you know, we 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 had a pigeon club, and all the other people would put them in a train right outside of my home in Virginia, and the train would go down to Delaware, and the conductor would then release them all at once. And when your pigeon came back to your coop, you would you would take his band off and run down to the post office and have it time stamped. And that's how they would, you know, that's how they would really? do the races. Yeah. And so, so the pigeon, they'll know. So, so, so the first place it sees daylight is the place it'll always come back to. Yeah, it'll always come back to. It. So, if you buy a pigeon. Uh huh at an auction or whatever, you have to keep that pigeon locked up for the rest of his life because if he ever gets out, he'll go back to the place where no. he was born. In the military... It's like a hot woman, kind of. <laughs> you know? In the military, they taught them how to go to a... They would have a little... A coop on wheels. And they would teach them to go to that coop and they would keep moving the coop so that the pigeon would learn to find the coop. So no he's matter not where. going back to a you know to a stationary barn. Wow! And um, in fact, during World War One, the uh, they knew where all of the falcon falcons, which I moved to falconry when I was about ten years old. Is that early to be moving to that, or is that where you like? Was well, it, that's is it... when I found out about it, and there, there happened to be a guy who lived. Um, near me who was one of the pioneers of American falconry and I read a book about it. My uncle was in the White House then and I and people were talking about Camelot and I read a book about Camelot by T. H. White, who is a British author who is also a falconer and he has and that that book was called The Once and Future King. They later made it into a Disney, you know, movie called The Sword in the Stone. Oh wow. But there is a chapter in there on falconry. And I read that chapter, and I just said, this is what I want to do with my life. And as it happened, there was a guy who had been an all-American football player at uh, at Penn State. He lived about a mile from my house. His name was Alvin Nye, and he was one of the pioneers of American falconry. And my father knew about him because whenever he worked as a, um, as a designer of jets at the Pentagon. Of oh, jets? Yeah, he was designing jets, and he was an engineer. And one of the things that um, the State Department knew about him, because whenever they were visiting Arab dignitaries who came to Washington, the Arabs are all crazy about falconry. Really? Yes, crazy about it. And, and that's yeah. falcons, right? Yeah, that's falcons. So falcon is, I mean... So when you moved up to Falcons, were you just, I mean, I can imagine if you were leaving Pigeon, you probably left them behind, huh? Well, actually, Pigeons remain, are kind of part of the sport of falconry. Okay. You use Pigeons in all, in different parts of the sport. So I kept Pigeons, I had Pigeons all my life until really until I moved to California six years ago, I kept Pigeons. 
Um, but I, I still have hawks at, you know, back in New York. I have my falconry license out here, but I never brought them out here. I got involved in surfing and, you know, a lot of other stuff, and it just wasn't as easy here. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, so I, so this guy, I apprenticed under this guy, under Alvin I, beginning when I was about 11 years old. And then uh, at that time, there was no regulation. They passed regulations in 1973, and then you had to get a license. And, you know, I was, I actually wrote the test at Falconer's Take um, in New York State and elsewhere to get their license, and I've been involved in it my whole life. So would you compete, like once you have this knowledge in this, so you're, you're learning, and like what is the man teaching you when you learn from the, from, uh, Mr. What was his you name? Again? Te- Smith. Te- he's teaching you how to how to trap the hawk, uh-huh. how to care for it, how to treat it when it gets sick, and of course how to train it and then hunt with it. You're, you're hunting my birds. Take um, I fly mainly Harris hawks, and I've flown every kind of hawk. But nowadays I fly mainly Harris hawks. They're very easy and they're very very fun, and they they hunt in groups. They're very sociable. They seem to be you know what you and I would interpret as affectionate towards humans, and they're almost like dogs. So when you take them to hunt, I mean, <laughs> this is because I mean I grew up raising hamsters. I, I didn't and, mean to be talking about this. This no, it's story. fascinating, man. Because so let's see a Harris hawk. Um, I just want to see what this even looks like. And now, when you take them to train or something, what do yeah, they do? They well, like when you take them to hunt with them, like okay, you you they're in a cage or on your arm? No, actually, they'll ride on the back seat of the car. Unbelievable. And then and I and knew you, that. And they'll hunt. <laughs> you knew that. Right? I mean, I just had an inkling. They, if they, I look like that, man, I'm definitely, <laughs> you know, I'm not driving. I'm definitely getting a ride. And they. Um, they're really just like dogs. When you get to the place where you're hunting, you let them out of the car, and they'll usually jump up and, and sit for a second and orient on the roof of the car. And then when you as you start walking through the woods, they'll follow you. And okay. They, yeah. And then I use I hunt with dogs too, so I have a couple of of dogs who will be you know looking for rabbits and squirrel and pheasant and turkey. And when they um, and when something moves, they'll chase it. Okay, so if you say so you, when you're walking through the woods, they'll what? Just be kind of going from tree to tree. They know that you're their owner. The yeah, whole they time? go to tree to tree. They stay in the canopy above your head, and they know that you're going to kick up game. So, um, you know, they they know they learn and they learn. Like I, the bird that I was flying until recently, I had for 24 years, and then every year I would breed that bird and get some eggs and babies out of them. And, you know, those birds are now all over New York State, all over the, um, at least all over the East Coast. So you're working at the grassroots level of helping the environment <laughs> if you are breeding birds. Yeah. I like, like I said, I, you know, it was a passion for me from when I was, when I was really little. Man, yeah, because we, I grew up, I used to sell hamsters when I was growing up, and we used to, you know, the big ones around us were the Roborovsky hamsters. Will you bring that up, Nick? Um, this is in Louisiana. Yeah, and we used to sell hamsters and guinea pigs, or G-pigs, they used to well, call they them. they eat those down there, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they call don't. them cooies in uh, in Latin America and Ecuador. Oh, you get down to oh, you get down to Ecuador, bro. You take a ger- you take a gerbil anywhere <laughs> south of uh, Paraguay, and it's a wrap. You know, 
I mean, Nicaragua, you show up with one of these bad boys, they think it's Thanksgiving, you know? Yeah. Um, but we have a different affinity for animals now. I feel like if it looks cute or if it's been marketed as cute, it becomes not a food anymore, you know? Um, once things get marketed as being too cute. So you'll I, get there in, into the... In truth, it's not a good food, in my opinion. Anyhow. Yeah. And I, you know, when I... When I I spent a lot of time in Ecuador, and I lived in Peru for a while, and I ended up eating a lot of guinea pigs. I went to a restaurant. I took Cheryl to a restaurant where they were selling them for food, and they had them. You know how the um, when you go into a seafood restaurant in New England, and they have all the lobsters in the tank, and you can pick the one, and they're mm-hmm. alive in there. Well, they had one of those with a. They had this really cute guinea pig house. And you could pick the guinea pig you were eating, and, you know, Cheryl is just... Broke she, her heart. She, yeah, broke her heart. Hopefully it wasn't balanced. That wasn't balanced. No, it was. was it? <laughs> <laughs> wow, so, so so very similar to the lobster in the tank. They just had these guinea pigs just like in a big, like, kind of a children's, like, playhouse or something kind of little deal? It was a multi-storied playhouse with little balconies on it. Damn. It, it looked like an apartment building for guinea pigs. And there's no way they look like little people in there. And there's no way that you would ever eat one of those. But, but some people are rolling in and being like, yeah. oh, that's the one? Yeah. That's amazing, man. Yeah, we never had any of that. I had, I've had owl. I've had some wild meats. People that have, like, uh, my sister's family will grill up anything that's dead. So we've had owl. We've had, like, what else did we have? Roadkill type what owl roadkill yeah uh, no they'll have like yard chicken just chickens that they've raised in their yards i'm trying to think of what else that i've had that was probably you know kind of unique growing up snake sometimes somebody i used to work on a farm for a couple of years and people would kill a snake and somebody sometimes if somebody had enough time they would cook it at lunch um well, you must have eaten alligator because that's on all the menus down there yeah i've eaten alligator frog was really you know yeah, when frog. i was young it was fun to give a kid some frog you know uh at the restaurants they used to have a lot of uh these kind of singing kind of, they had like this kind of black group of gentlemen that were like a quartet and they would sing and then at the end of the thing they would give all the kids a little bit of frog you know it was just like uh some like fancy kind of restaurant we would go to like when my parents were having an anniversary or something but um but man that's wild though i don't know i've never met anybody that knew how to that knew how to hunt with a hawk i mean that's pretty and do hawks have a or, or with a falcon does a falcon have an arch nemesis in in nature well, falcons get eaten a lot by eagles. Unbelievable. So that, and then at night, they get eaten by owls because they can't see anything at night. And that's why you put a hood on them because when it, once it gets dark, they just get calm because there's nothing they can do about anything. Wow. Their eyes are adapted for seeing both microscopically and telescopically during the daytime. and But they're almost incapable of seeing anything at night. But a lot of the Western falconers, um, when they, you know, they hunt sage grouse and they have to hunt early in the morning because their birds will get eaten by eagles. When the bird goes down on a sage grouse, the eagle will see that from miles away and go down and eat both the grouse and the hawk. Damn. Those are, you know, 80% of hawks die during their first year. They have. It's hard for them to figure out how to hunt, and um, they, uh, you know, only the really smart and lucky ones survive. A lot of them, they have a lot of nemesis. It's mainly owls and and eagles. 
So you're growing up. So you guys, so take me back also to the pigeon thing. So you would take a pigeon, you would let it go, you would put it on a train. Yeah, we put it on the train. And it was like a pigeon club you were in. Yes. So everybody have a pigeon. They put it on the train. It goes to somewhere, maybe down to the beach or somewhere, wherever it takes it, Myrtle yeah. Beach or something. And then they let it loose. Right. And they then go like maybe 100 miles, uh, the really good pigeons would go two or 300 miles. If you, you know, if you had a 500 mile homer, that's what you would brag about. Damn. <laughs> that's like having like one of those big marbles that does like a steely exactly. marble. Wow. <laughs> That's fascinating, man. So, so now whoever got theirs back first, did they kind of win the contest? Yeah, they was win. It? I see. That's amazing, man. I can't even imagine that. I can't even because I think I would not have enough trust in my heart that I would believe that that bird was ever going to come back. It must have lifted your spirits when well, it got you back. Don't, you don't take them a hundred mile away the first time you do it. I I would take them to the school in the morning and let them go and go on the weekends farther and farther away and. You know, make sure that they come back. That's fascinating, man. Dude, so what was it? I, so when I picture like, you know, they didn't have any Kennedys on our street growing up. And so I picture if I ever thought of a Kennedy, you know, um, I thought of like, you know, you guys have like really nice dishes, like nice, um, you know, cupboards, silver, crabs, you know, everything. Like, was it like maypoles? I picture like people constantly like just dancing in the yard. <laughs> Like was it? What was a? What was Come a? On, man. I, that's just what I picture. I'm just telling well, my you. My house that. was chaos. I had eleven brothers and sisters, and you know, um, I, I had a very, very, you know, I had a, a wonderful life. But a lot of outdoor stuff. Uh, my parents would lock us out in the morning, and we weren't allowed to come in till the night. And we spent a lot of time, particularly in the summer. I had, I, you know, I had my eleven brothers and sisters, twenty nine cousins. We all lived wow. together, and um, you know, there was there was a lot of mayhem, um, a lot of laughter, and and uh, and just outdoor, you know, outdoors fishing, skiing. Um, uh, scuba diving, and would the like, older well, kids teach the younger kids? Was that kind of how it went? Yeah. Was there? Yeah, that's amazing, man. Yeah, I can't even imagine that. I mean, it just seems like yeah, because I guess I just always thought about it as. And, and did it feel like you guys were like so separate from the world of your parents because they were living in like a poli more of like a political no, world? No, everything was. You know, we we felt we were included in everything. I was, you know. I, the first time that I came to California was for the 1960 convention, and I saw my uncle get inaugurated, and then I um, flew back on the airplane with him and sat next to him on the plane. But my father would, you know, my home was in Virginia, but at that time, you could get to the Justice Department in about um, eight or nine minutes if you were driving fast. And so my father would come home at night and he would talk about integrating the University of Alabama or, you know, whatever the issues of the day was. And, he, you know, we were always included and, and we visited him the white and at the Justice Department. I um, one day my uh, uncle invited me to spend a morning with him in the White House in the Oval Office. We were, you know, we were part of all of the. Uh, I sat behind a couch during the Cuban Missile Crisis, 
and you know listened to my our house was kind of a, a satellite white house because my father was the attorney general and he was the president's chief advisor we were a mile away from the cia headquarters in langley and my father at that time was um you know was involved with the trying to get the cia to behave and so all of that you know there were green berets at our house there were cuban refugees there was um you know the the entire milieu of that period was damn um, damn dmv it sounds like you know i mean it just has you know it's like it just sounds like when i was so much going on it was Every Friday when we were at the Cape, there would be three helicopters that would land, marine helicopters that would land on our lawn every Friday. And my uncle would get off President Kennedy, my father, who was the attorney general, my uncle, Sarge Shriver, who was the director of the Peace Corps, my uncle, Ted Kennedy, who was in the Senate already at that time, um, and my uncle, Steve Smith, who was chief of staff. And the White House would move to our house for the weekend. And, you know, there was always interesting people there. And um, we had, after 1962, my uncle developed this very close relationship with with Khrushchev. And the CIA was baffled by Khrushchev because they had never been able to get a spy into the Kremlin. There was a mole in the CIA, and to this day, they don't know who it was. And every time they got a high-level spy in the Kremlin, he would immediately be killed because the mole at Langley was telling him who it was. So they really had no clue what Khrushchev was like or whether it was a monolithic, whether the Kremlin was monolithic and everybody was thinking the same, which was kind of the assumption. And so he came to visit you guys. He never visited us, no, but he exchanged... um, he exchanged letters with my uncle secretly. He didn't want the KGB or the GRU to find out he was writing my uncle. And he um, and my uncle was, was, again, they both figured out that they were both at war with the military and intelligence apparatus with 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 which they were surrounded. Ah, oh, I see what you're saying. So it's and, like you know, they didn't Khrushchev know they could trust. Been, Khrushchev had been a war hero. He had... Uh, run the defense of Stalingrad under Stalin. Stalin had actually tried to purge him at one point, and the only reason he didn't was because Khrushchev was running the defense of um, of Stalingrad, and he couldn't reach him because you know when Hitler was trying to attack Stalingrad, which is one of the worst battles, one of the most brutal battles in human history. And one of the most expensive battles in terms of human life. And Khrushchev had no desire to go to war. His first meeting with my uncle was a couple of was about a month after my uncle took office, and they met at Geneva. And my uncle went into that meeting with very high hopes that he could make peace and they could begin dismantling the nuclear arsenal on both sides. But Khrushchev had met him very pugnaciously and had been bombastic and had given him a, a lecture about imperialism and said that he was ready for for war. And he was really kind of in his face. And my uncle went home from that meeting very depressed. Mm. And then a year and a half later, there was a confrontation when the Soviets were building the wall in Berlin because they were hemorrhaging people. Everybody was trying to get out of East Germany and come onto the western side, which the U.S. controlled. And Khrushchev built a wall there, 
and his Joint Chiefs of Staff saw this as an opportunity. They wanted to go to war with the Russians. They believed that at that point in history, we had the nuclear advantage. The Russians would soon catch up with us. So the president's chief of staff wanted to go to war. Well, his Joint Chiefs did, which okay. was the military and the leaders of the CIA wanted to they wanted they saw the they saw war as inevitable and that the sooner the better because the US was at a big military advantage in terms of its nuclear arsenal at that time. And um and my uncle and Khrushchev's uh joint chiefs were basically in the same position. They were spoiling for a war. My uncle, who was also a veteran and had, you know, had a uh had seen his men die, um, had three of his men on his PT boat killed when it was run over by a, a Japanese destroyer. And then, you know, he had been lost at sea for 10 days, hiding out on a little island with the Japanese searching for him. And he he mistrusted the, the brass. He had been lied to by Alan Dulles at the very beginning. He knew Dulles had lied to him and fired Alan Dulles. And fired the top three guys of the CIA and no longer trusted his military. And he realized that he was in the same boat with with Khrushchev. Oh, in 1962, Khrushchev built the wall and one of Jack's generals, Lucius Clay, mounted bulldozer plows on the front of tanks and went to push down the wall. And the Russians met him on the other side at Checkpoint Charlie with their own squadron of jet tanks. And my uncle sent a secret message to Khrushchev at that point saying, you know, please withdraw your tanks. And I promised that when you do that, we will withdraw ours within 20 minutes. And he said, my back is against the wall. I have no place to retreat. Um, and my uncle and father believed that there would be that there, they lived for a lot of their administration believing that the military may commit a coup against them. That their own military, yes, that the U.S. Because they couldn't trust the CIA because they they uh, they believed that yeah right exactly their their military you know was. Daniel Ellsberg, who was working in the Pentagon at that time, said that it was you know that at the. The atmosphere in the Pentagon was one of coup d'etat, of rebellion, that they believed that um, the fact that my uncle had not gone into Cuba and bombed Castro during the Bay of Pigs, which was two months into his administration, and then he did not bomb Khrushchev during the that during that confrontation at Berlin. That, that was evidence that he was committing treason against the United States. So they were really war happy at that time, huh? Yes. And your uncle came in and your and that's when your father was attorney general and they were a little bit more on the peaceful side of things, huh? Right. Or the hopeful side of peace. Well, they didn't want to go to war. They, in fact, my uncle said when he was asked by Ben Bradley, who was one of his best friends, who was the editor of the Washington Post, what he wanted on his as his epitaph on his tombstone. He said he wanted, he kept the peace. Mm. And he often said that the president's principal job was to keep the nation out of war. Who was a better peacekeeper, you think, your uncle or your father? When you look back, even just like well, in there? they were working together at that time. I mean, my uncle really did not want to go to war. And my father ran against the Vietnam War. 
And, you know, um, yeah, there's a lot of famous pictures of him and stuff when he was running. Uh, yeah. Um, um, you want to talk about the Pfizer vaccine? Yeah. <laughs> we can talk about whatever. Uh, so you would, if you, do you, because th- in your life, this could be a time, I mean, where you would, did you ever have presidential hopes where you would be running for president even at this time in your life? Did I think that? Yeah. Um, and not as a judgment or anything. Just I was just thinking about that yesterday. I was thinking about, oh, well, when are people usually presidents? And it's kind of around your age, kind of. Well, I had opportunities to go into politics, and I considered it many times during my life, probably most directly during when Hillary, um, when Hillary was appointed Secretary of State. She was at that point the senator, the U.S. senator from New York and occupied the seat that my father had occupied. I had come close to running for that seat in the previous election, decided not to, and then Hillary came in and ran for okay. it. Um, and do you David, wish you had run or do you? No, it, it wasn't right. It wasn't the right time for me. I had personal issues that I was dealing with and family. I have, you know, I have... Uh, six kids, and I um, I had a lot of, per, you know, I needed to pay attention to, to what was going on there. And I like my life, too, as an environmental advocate. So I ended up not doing that. And then when Hillary left two years later to go to the White House, the governor of New York, David Patterson, called me, and it was his job to appoint somebody to fill her seat, mm. and he offered me that job. So I could have, at that point, chosen to be U.S. senator without even running for it nice. and my dad's seat. But again, for personal reasons, I didn't do it at that time. And, you know, I've, I kind of um, live my life like you do one day at a time and try to make, you know, keep doing the next right thing. And at that point, it was clear to me that the decision for me was to stay at home with my family and continue to do my environmental advocacy. And so I don't look back on that with any regret or, you know, I'm very much at peace with where I am. And were you going to have a space in Trump? And Trump almost gave you a position or whenever he became president. Wasn't there talk of that? And then it kind of went away. He just kind of went into the into the wind with it. Well, what happened was he con- in 20... 20- over the Christmas vacation, um, 2016, he's elected, right? right? And then the, obviously the election isn't in November. So I was skiing and with my kids in Colorado over Christmas vacation, and I got a call from his chief of staff saying the president-elect wants to meet with That's him. crazy. And... He wants to talk about vaccines. So, you know, I've been an activist on trying to get safer vaccines for a long time. And, of course, I agreed to meet with him. So I went to, immediately after getting home, I went to Washington, or I went to New York and met with him in Trump Tower. And um, during, it was about a two-hour meeting. Had you ever met with him before? I had sued him twice before successfully. Okay, yeah. And I had met him. And, you know, the the lawsuit um, was not something that had hurt our relationship. I stopped him from building two golf courses in the New York City watershed. About And those lawsuits were about two or three years apart. So... Um, and he knew me and he knew my family. He would um, 
when my sister ran for the for governor of Maryland, he made a big contribution to that. He contributed to my brother, who was then in Congress, and I had a cousin who was a, a congressman from Rhode Island, and he made contributions to that. He was a big Democratic donor at that point. He called me. He asked me to come in. I had, as I said, about a two-hour meeting with him. At that meeting, people were coming in and out of that meeting. So, um, so Steve Bannon was there. Um, Renz Priebus, if you remember him. Uh, Hope Hill was there. Kellyanne Conway, and uh, and Jared Kushner, and both of the president's sons at various times were in that meeting. A lot of people. And he, but as I had a lot of time alone with President Trump too. He said that he believed that vaccines were making people sick. Specifically, he had three women friends who were mothers. One who was in the building that day, who had perfectly healthy kids, who had gotten uh, a you know their wellness visits when they were around two years old, and the. The children never were the same after those visits. They all had been subsequently diagnosed with autism. And he believed that it was linked to the vaccines. And he, you know, because he had been open about that during the campaign, hundreds of women had, as they did, the same thing that happened to me that got me into this, you know, this career killing uh, um, advocacy, vaccine <laughs> safety, obviously. Um, you know, people start coming up to you and saying, you know, this happened to me, this happened to my son, I had a perfectly healthy child and who exceeded all his milestones and I took him in at 16 months and he, you know, he was speaking, he was toilet trained, he had social interactions and I took him in and he had a, a shot uh, or a series of shots, usually yeah. it could be up to nine. Yeah, and now he's living in a freaking tent at the circus right. every afternoon. And they get it at night, they spike a fever, 103. They have, I mean, the, the, the stories were eerily all identical. They had a seizure, and then over the next three months, they lose all of their capacity to, for social interactions, for eye contact. They begin the... Oh, yeah. It's scary. I mean, a lot of that stuff is super scary. So but so you go into that office so with Trump. I go in there, and, so, and he tells me these stories, and he says he wants to do something about it. And does it seem serious when he's saying that? Like, uh, yeah, well, I, yeah, he was dead serious. Okay. And he asked, um, you know, whether I would run a vaccine safety commission. And then he asked what I would do. And I said... Listen, I don't think you have to do a big political lift. All I think you need to do is open up the databases and allow independent scientists in there to actually look at the science because the HMOs have all the vaccine data down to batch for every child in America, and they also have the medical records. So all you have to do, in fact, you can do now that is AI can do machine counting and you can do cluster analysis and you can figure out very, very quickly whether all of these epidemics, not not just of you know neurodevelopmental diseases like all the ADD, the ADHD, the speech delay, the Tourette's syndrome, the, um, the, the narcolepsy, the ASD and autism. Oh yeah, the allergic diseases, food allergies, peanut allergies. Oh, it's crazy when you think about asthma, that. and then all the autoimmune diseases. Adult asthma. What? Even adult asthma. Yeah. Well, they, but and they're all listed, by the way, on the vaccine inserts 
as vaccine side effects because the only way that you can sue, you know, they passed this law in 1986 and made it illegal to sue a vaccine company for injury, but you still can sue them if they know of an injury that's caused by their vaccine and they don't list it on the side effects. So uh, they list, they list 400 everything. injuries on everything. their on Falling their, down the stairs, everything. Well, yeah, it's anything. all the autoimmune diseases. But they're all, covering all their bases that way. Yeah, but saying. they're not allowed to list it unless there is significant evidence that it's actually being caused by the vaccine. FDA, FDA is not allowed to allow them to list it unless FDA believes it's being caused by the vaccine. But so then, so the so the vaccines they are approved by the FDA. But is the FDA a compromised group, though? Well, yeah, the, it's actually, you know, people say it's approved by FDA, but actually the it's not approved. The FDA rubber stamps it. There's a panel within FDA that's called VRBAC, V-R-B-A-C, um, that is, uh, and that group is staffed or populated by industry insiders so they're not people who work for fda and they're the ones who decide on the licensing and the problem is that vaccines are not safety tested right that other medications are and there's an exemption and it and it's an artifact of the um of the the of cdc's legacy as the public health service CDC used to be called the Public Health Service. Now it's a quasi-military agency. That's why people at CDC have military ranks like Surgeon General and, they're, um, and they wear uniforms. And the vaccine program was initially conceived as a national security defense against biological attacks on our country. So the, so the, the only reason that we had the CDC was because we were thinking, okay, well, if some company, if some country poisons us or attacks us, we want to be able to Well, that the vaccine ahead. program, we had, CDC was out there. I mean, CDC has other functions. But yeah, the vaccine program the vaccine was, program. if the Russians attacked us with anthrax or some other biological agent, they wanted to be able to formulate a vaccine very quickly deploy it to 200 million Americans without regulatory impediments. And so they said, if we call it a medicine, we're going to have to do double-blind placebo right. testing. And that takes five years because a lot of injuries from medications, from all medications, have um, it takes long, time. long diagnostic horizons. Of course. And, so they found a loophole by naming it something different, by calling right, it a vaccine. by calling it biologics. And then, and and they exempt from safety testing. Yes, and so that's why vaccines do not have to be safety testing. In fact, the COVID vaccines that they're doing right now have more safety testing than any vaccine in history has ever had. I mean, the one that Pfizer approved, or the one that Pfizer is moving towards approval, that it just kind of released some of the data on. Um, was tested on 42,000 people. And it was a, I believe, although we don't know because we haven't seen the data, that it may have used a true placebo, and that's very unusual. And that's uh, a, go on, sorry. Well, the, the problem, you know, the stock market rebounded when Pfizer made these announcements. Yeah, I saw this. Pfizer and Biotech. What was the other one? Biotech? Yeah, that's its partner. Okay. And the problem with that vaccine is that, and by the way, if they come up with a vaccine that does what people think vaccines ought to do, which is you take one shot, you're protected for life. There's very, you know, there's side effects are serious side effects are one in a million. And, um, 
you know, the, I'd be the first in line to take it. Right. So I'm not an anti-vaccine. You're not all. an anti-vaxxer. I want to say that too. You, people say, but you're a safe. You're a safe vaxxer. Well, Is that a I safer term? I want to make term? sure we have robust science. We have independent regulatory agencies right. and that the vaccine and that we're sure that the vaccine is averting more problems than it's causing right and that seems like pretty reasonable i also don't think that the government no matter what ought to be able to mandate that people take medications particularly medications that have risks and all vaccines have risks if they didn't have risks they wouldn't have given them immunity from liability you know that's why so take take me through that when you say that if they didn't have risks they wouldn't well, the give vaccine, them. Here's what happened is they you know when I was a kid I had three vaccines. Mm-hmm. My kids got today's kids get seventy two shot doses of sixteen vaccines. So they give them they load them up with the shots and in that there's seventy two vaccines. There's seventy two doses. So you know with hepatitis B you get five doses of that. So but you get all together you're getting seventy two doses. And the and the the change happened. What happened is they added. Sounds like a new Jay Z album, doesn't it, Nick? Seventy two doses or something. <laughs> they, and they, I'll, I'll tell you a story real quick before you go, Bobby. I'll tell you before you go on. I'll tell you this story. So I grew up in a town where you know a lot of they had a primate testing facility in our town. One of the first ones in the country was Tulane University. And um, which is one of the reasons, too, why I'm fascinated by a lot of the stuff that that you're into and that you speak out on is because so when I was growing up, they had this facility. It's one of the first places that they tested the polio vaccine because it was um, it was Tulane University. They had a bunch of monkeys. Um, Yeah. Is this some of the information, Nick, here? Yeah, that's the cutter incident. Well, so they had tested this. They had a woman in New Orleans named Dr. Mary Sherman, and she allegedly realized that some of the vaccines that they were making were actually giving people polio yeah. and giving people, uh, and actually I think also causing cervical cancer in women. I, I've, I've read this uh, over the years and it's just been a lot of lore well, in our town. There was a woman at NIH called Bernice Eddy. Well, she got murdered though. Dr. Mary Sherman oh, got yeah, murdered. Oh yeah, that's right. That's Mary's monkey. Yeah. She got and, murdered and in Louisiana. That, and there was some associated with the, the JFK assassination. Yeah, there was some rumors of that and everything yeah. because Lee Harvey Oswald lived not far from there. Like, because uh, he went to school in our town when I, where I grew up. Yeah. And he went to middle school there. But um, but uh, anyway, so there was always this lore that like um, just that in our area. You know, there was a lot of lore about that kind of stuff. But they ended up giving that vaccine out. This is where I'm going. They gave. They knew the vaccine, or there was rumor that the vaccine yeah, was knew. faulty, and they gave it out anyway. Yeah, there was a let. And that's the Cutter Laboratories, I think, that we're just yeah. looking at. And, and they, they gave it in California. I think it made sixty thousand people. Yeah, um, sixty thousand. He's Paul Offit. He's saying forty thousand people got polio from it, and two hundred. Uh, people got paralysis and 10 were killed and this and, was cutter laboratory that was a laboratory i guess that was r- like working on the salk and sabin vaccines right and uh but yeah so a, anyway that stuff was always in my wheelhouse growing up like oh and my mom was big into that kind of stuff like our vaccines safe what's going on here you know yeah it was part of the lore in our area hey can you guys are you listening can you hear just want to make sure that you are listening because if you're not, or if you are, well, you could probably use a pair of premium wireless earbuds, especially now that you can get them at less than half the price of the other guys. I recommend wireless earbuds from Raycon. 
Raycon's newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds, are the best ones yet. With six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, who don't want the bass, and a more compact design, a noise-isolating fit. Man, no noise for you. Just the sound you want to hear. Raycon earbuds are stylish and discreet. No dangling wires, no dangling stems. The company was co-founded by Ray J, Snoop Dogg, Mike Tyson, and they're all obsessed with their products. Give them a try. Raycon has a 45-day free return policy. So you can make sure they're the pair of wireless earbuds for you. You have a Christmas gift for someone you need, they like to hear stuff, boom, done. The Everyday E25 earbuds from Raycon. For a limited time, get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash Theo. That's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash T-H-E-O for a special 15% discount on Raycon wireless earbuds. Make sure to check it out now while the deal's running. Great Christmas gift for somebody. Great gift for yourself. Treat yourself. B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N buyraycon.com slash Theo. You know, a lot of people have a hard time taking pills, especially if they're thinking about uh, sex. You might be thinking about sex and be like, damn, I can't take a pill right now. I'm trying to, you know, think about sex, but you can do it all. And who's who? who's here to help you? Blue Chew. If you like sex, you're going to like Blue Chew. BlueChew.com. BlueChew.com offers men a performance enhancement for the bedroom. You can get the first chewables with the active ingredients sildenafil or tadalafil. Tadalafil. BlueChew.com affiliated physicians work with you to find the dosage and active ingredient that is best for you. They're not going to put you on some jaw jacker, you know. They're not going to send you out there with a fifth leg, baby. They're going to take care of you. You want to look decent and feel decent and have a decent wiener when you need it. The chewables from BlueChew.com are made in the USA. None of these foreign hitters. You and your partner will love it. Chew it and do it. That's what they say. It only takes a few minutes to connect with a BlueChew.com affiliated physician. Here's a great deal. Do it now. Get BlueChew for your stepdaddy for Christmas. Let him put that hammer down on mama. You feel me? BlueChew.com. Get your first order when you use promo code Theo. Get your first order free. That's right. Visit BlueChew.com. Get your first order free when you use promo code T-H-E-O. Just pay $5 shipping. That's B-L-U-E-C-H-E-W dot com. Promo code Theo. Um, so why are, why are, so who kind of controls who, why we get vaccines? Do, does the government control it or do businesses control it? Do we well, have any say industry, over it? Now the industry um, which are four companies, it's Merck, Sanofi, Pfizer, and Glaxo, um, really control the whole process. And they control these panels, that the, the panel in FDA, Verpac, that, that licenses the new vaccines, and then it goes over to the CDC, and they mandate them. And both of those panels are completely controlled. They're staffed by industry. They're controlled by industry. And Tony Fauci is... Um, you know, is the kind of the guy who orchestrates the, you know, that whole process. But like I said, 
we now have the most aggressive vaccine schedule in the in the country and with the with the COVID vaccine, you mean? Well, no. Well, the with COVID va- the problem with the COVID vaccine. I'll tell you. Well, here's the problem: is they they have all these vaccines and they recognize that it's going to be really hard to get a vaccine that does what people say that would think it's going to do. So they have been reducing the standards to make it so that they can pass a vaccine no matter what. And what they think it's going to do is make it so that they don't have to worry about COVID at all. Right, right. Is that, that what If you get a shot, you're protected. You're good. And, and that you're not going to transmit it. Okay. And, that, and particularly, we want to make sure that the, the people who are vulnerable, so people with comorbidities and fragile elderly, mm-hmm. that it's going to keep them from dying. Um, but what they did is the, the testing protocols that they're using do not require them to show any of those things. The testing, and I'll, I'll tell you how it, it works. They take 22,000 people and they give them the Pfizer vaccine. And they took 22,000 people and give them a placebo. And then they wait and it's double blind. So the way it's supposed to work is neither the patients, the subjects, test subject volunteers or the um, researchers know who got what. Okay. And then you wait till 100 people get sick from COVID. That takes a while because, you know, you have 40,000 people and it's it's kind of hard nowadays to get sick from COVID. You're not going to have, you know, you're not going to have the majority of those people exposed. So after 100 people get sick, mm-hmm. They stop the study and look at it. And then they say, how many of those people got the vaccine and how many got the placebo? Okay. And if 50% of them got the vaccine and 50% of the placebo, it means there's zero efficacy and the vaccine doesn't work. Well, in this case with Pfizer, everybody's excited because 90, they, they, they stopped the study when 95 people got sick. And apparently... 85 of those people were in the placebo group, Mm. which means the vaccine appears to be 90% effective. Here's the problem. The way they measure whether you have COVID is that you have one positive PCR test, you have one positive PCR test, and you have one symptom. So that could be a cough, it could be a fever, it could be a chill, it could be a headache, and you have COVID. So what they're testing the vaccine for is not what we want to know. Does it prevent you from dying? Right. Does it prevent you from being hospitalized? Understood. And and we don't. We will never know from because they have they have geared back the studies so that it, to make them as Peter Doshi, who is the editor of the British Medical Journal, and he said this in the New York Times editorial. He said these studies were designed to succeed so that you cannot fail. Oh, no matter how bad the vaccine is, it's going to pass. Because we want a vaccine, right? Everybody wants a vaccine so we can restart the economy. The big problem with this vaccine, there's two problems. One is it does not prevent transmission. That means I can get the vaccine and then I get exposed to COVID. I still give COVID to you and everybody on the airplane. You just don't experience it. I don't experience it, but it makes it even more dangerous 
because normally, if normally I we would sick, know you have it. I, if I, yeah, then I'd stay home and I wouldn't infect buddy. But if I'm feeling like a million bucks, <laughs> yeah. and I'm still, I become a super spreader, like you know, typhoid Mary. Oh yeah. You don't want that, and yet that's what apparently this vaccine does. Mm. It stops you from knowing it, but you continue to transmit it. The other problem is that they're only testing them for a month or two months. You're not going to see bad side effects till maybe a year out. A lot of these, um, you know, injuries that you get from vaccines have very long incubation periods. Autoimmune disease like diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, Graves' disease, Crohn's disease, um, IBS. You won't see these in, in a, or food allergies. Yeah, it takes a long time for those to incubate right. inside of the and, body and, and, and what grow up. And what Pfizer's doing, which is very dishonest, is as soon as it finishes the study, it unblinds it so that everybody knows you got the vaccine, you got the placebo. And then it takes all the people in the placebo group and it gives them the real vaccine. So now we completely are wow. unable to tell whether there's long-term injuries. It's like covering your future tracks. kind of. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's a trick that they've used in the vaccine injury, uh, industry. It's the same thing they did with the Gardasil vaccine. But it makes it impossible for anybody to ever know whether the reason they're getting sick was because of that vaccine or whether it was just bad luck. So why is it that we've become so like, why is it our government that's giving so much power to these um, to these companies and less less thoughtfulness to the safety of humanity? Like who's who? Yeah, I mean, the, the problem is the entire sort of medical cartel is now feeding at the tit of big pharma. Yeah. So the, the, the universities are getting all their money from, from, you know, from sponsoring clinical trials. Um, the, the regulatory agencies have become, are, are, what, you know, are subject to what we call regulatory capture. They've become sock puppets for the industry that they're supposed to regulate. And, you know, you see that everywhere. I mean, I've been suing regulatory agencies for 40 years, EPA and, you know, and um, and the state agency, for example, famously in, in Louisiana is utterly run by the oil industry and is corrupt. But um, the corruption is particularly acute in HHS. And the reason for that is that, that the agencies are really part of the industry. Oh, half of CDC's budget goes to buying and selling vaccines. FDA or or FDA, half of its budget comes from the pharmaceutical companies. And with NIH, which is the other big agency, they are collecting tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars on vaccine patents. So wow. they work on the, the vaccine at the outset. They, they, Man, they transfer the patent to Gilead or Pfizer. The Moderna vaccine was completely developed by Tony Fauci. He hands it to a private group. They then they put two billion dollars of federal money into allowing them to develop it. And then Tony Fauci's agency keeps half the profits from the vaccine. Oh, it would be like, you know, I've sued EPA many times for being a captured agency, but, you know, what would it, what would it be like if EPA made half of its profits selling coal? Yeah. It's the same thing. These agencies yeah. are not independent agencies. They're completely captured. And 
you have then you know the, the all of the other institutions of government that that should stand between a greedy corporation and a vulnerable child have been compromised. Jesus, Congress, man. Congress gets more money lobbying money from the from the pharmaceutical industry than any other industry. They give them double what oil and gas. I'm talking about lobbyists. There's more pharma lobbyists on Capitol Hill than there are congressmen, senators, and Supreme Court justices combined. The regulatory agencies have been captured. The press is utterly captured. And that's because in 1997, we passed a law in this country, or FDA, you know, changed regulation to make it legal for the first time for um, television and radio and newspapers to advertise pharmaceutical products on the air, direct to consumer pharmaceutical. When was that? What year was that? That was 97. So there's only two countries in the world that allow that. Everybody agrees a terrible thing to do. Oh, and it's half of our commercials right. now as well. Well, Roger Ailes, who founded Fox, told me that, that there are 22 commercials on his average evening news show, and 17 of those are pharmaceutical. Wow. Oh, yeah. I'm just trying to get through half a family guy, and next thing you know, I have HIV by the end of the right. day. So, you know what I'm saying? It's just like... <laughs> The fear, it's and a lot of it's fear, too. And they give you pictures of like, oh, here's a happy family, but you might have this looming in the distance, you know? Yeah. You might well, have Kevin scoliosis. Kevin said that he wanted to do one of those ads yeah. where, where you, know, they, you know, they list all these horrible things from the side effects, and the people are walking around half, half, happy and laughing and playing football. He said he just wants to do one of those ads where people are actually acting out <laughs> the, the side, side effects. effects. That would be so good. <laughs> Man, he's so good. They don't have they, SNL's not the same. It was so different when they had guys like him, Carvey, Spade on there. I feel like the level of humor was just so different. Um, it's just gotten different now on there. Um, so, so you had so so you have this meeting with Trump. Just to just kind of going back to that, you have this meeting. I had with the Trump. meeting with Trump, and and and, and did you leave out of the meeting kind of hopeful about it. Well, I said to him, "What do you want me to do?" And he said, "We want you to announce it." So. Jared Kushner escorted me to the Prescott scrum. How tall is Jared Kushner, you think? He, he's uh, he's about, I think he's about my size. He's about 6'1". Okay. And I think you're like 6'1", too, right? Yeah, I'm about a little over 6. I'm reaching. I'm doing yoga, too. I actually did some this morning. Yeah. Well, you start shrinking, too, on you. I mean, I told you the next 20 years of your life are going to be a nightmare because... Um, <laughs> well, you battle against it a lot. I see you at the gym all the time. Yeah, you used to. Yeah, until it closed up. Yeah. But I hear about you at the gym sometimes. When it opened back up briefly, the trainer that I have is like, oh, I saw uh, Bobby Kennedy in there the other day. Yeah. I was like, yeah, he's in there. Um, um, so, so you left out of there. Was it hopeful? Oh, yeah. So then I went down and announced it, talked to the press, and then uh, a week later, Pfizer made a million dollar contribution to Trump's inaugural. And then Trump comes in and we continue to have some meetings with Fauci and, you know, that he he had set up that we're part of this process and we're rolling to get this thing started. And, and does Fauci meet. seem legit when you talk to him? Does he seem like somebody, does he seem like a... Oh, he's very, very charming, but he's not, he's... Listen, Fauci, I'm about to publish a book on Fauci. Yeah. And he's, um, you know, he's basically, he's been there for 50 years. So he's like J. Edgar Hoover. And the only way that you last at that agency for 50 years is by 
carrying water for the pharmaceutical industry, and under his watch, he's supposed to prevent autoimmune and allergic diseases. Under his watch, chronic disease has gone from affecting 12% of the American population to 54%. We take oh, yeah. more pharmaceutical drugs than anybody in the world. We it's pay crazy. the highest prices. So we, it's, we, he's made this country pharmaceutical nation. Yeah, my brother's allergic to sesame seeds. But, you know, exactly. And the way that you get allergies is from the aluminum adjuvant in the vaccine, which is meant, is put in that vaccine to initiate an allergic response. And it and so if you have sesame seed oil as an excipient in the vaccine, or if you're if you're eating sesame seeds when you have that aluminum adjuvant in you, it can promote provoke an allergic a permanent allergy. And if you look, you don't know anybody who is my age who has food allergies. Very, very hard to find. I think it's one in something like thirteen hundred. And today Oh, you know, today, if you're born after you kill half a football team, yeah, you know what I'm after, saying? Everybody's after got a 1989. Problem. So any anybody who was born after 89, I think it's one in 12 now. Autism went from one in 10,000 in my generation to one in every 34 kids, and it's the same with all these chronic diseases that are all listed as side effects. So the proof the seems to be right there. Well, that's correlation, which isn't actually proof. But okay. if you actually go into the scientific literature, the proof is there. But now, is that science? So, so whenever you talked to Trump and you said, okay, let's open up this this database, right? This information, because you said like- Yeah, each- I said, let, let, you know, I said, you don't have to do any heavy lift. You don't have to go to Congress. You don't have to change regulations. All you have to do is open up the vaccine safety data link, which is the medical records for the top nine HMOs and allow independent scientists to go in there and just open it up so they can start publishing. And did he do it? And no, he didn't. It's still locked, you know, locked down. Tony Fauci makes sure nobody can get in there. And, you know, even when Congress ordered these two scientists called David and Michael Geyer, ordered them to go in there and they, they let them into the place, they, they gave them one study room. They would not allow them near a copy machine. They allowed them pencils Jesus. and they had to write down data and they, they cranked the heat in the room up to 105 <laughs> And they, you know, stole their hard drives and they did. Writing. They, don't, they do not writing? want anybody in that. Right. right. And writing's hard. You've you written a letter. It's like having a stroke the whole time. It's like, <laughs> I feel like it's fucking insane. <laughs> Have you written something? I mean, it's absolutely Yeah, ridiculous. I do write. I, I mean, you might still write. I do, I mean, but it's, yeah, it's getting. Uh, so anyway. So anyway, so Big Pharma so stepped in and put some money in. in. And then Trump appoints. Pharma, uh, Pfizer's lobbyist to run FDA, um, Scott Gottlieb, and Eli Lilly's lobbyist, Alex Azar, to run HHS. And as soon as they came in, they shut us down. And was that a big, were you bummed about that? Was I bummed? Yeah, I was very bummed. I'd have been bummed. Yeah, of course. I'd have been we, bummed, it man. was like within our grasp, you know. And do you think, because I feel like a lot of the thing with Trump was that he, a lot of people felt like and feel like that he was trying to speak for like the just everyday working guy. Do you feel like he was like that? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, look, 
he um he's also a shit i mean he also is like you know as also as this has this mystique of being this businessman that hides behind lawyers and you know like um just like every other businessman kind of it seems like a lot of times yeah you know what i i don't like bullies and i didn't like that part of his character i just i i don't care i'm nonpartisan. If it's a Democrat or if it's a Republican and they do something wrong, I'm going to call them on it. And you know, I don't think I don't think bullying people is uh, is a good um, thing. And I think you know one of the gifts that Donald Trump had was are really you know gifts of um, of demagoguery that he was able to connect to a lot of the kind of darker sides of people, to bigotry and anger. And I'm not, you know, and I, 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 I watch that happen. That's not imaginary. And a lot of people think that that's okay. Um, Do you think the media had a large part in that? I mean, I'm not... I think the media was reprehensible on both sides. And I think the coverage of Trump by, for example, CNN um, was sickening. Because I, you know, I saw Trump do a lot of things that should be criticized and, and you know, that we should be horrified by. Uh, the media coverage was extremely dishonest and they weren't. And the media coverage of COVID has been, you know, absolutely oh. dishonest. And that, to me, is what I object. What I, you know, what I object about the, for example, the mandates, the masks, the lockdowns, et cetera, I read the science, and if you go to CHD's website, Children's Health Defense, you can see the mass studies that we've been able to to uh, to accumulate. And we take the ones that say the masks work, which are very few, and they're mainly CDC-sponsored, and the many, many, many that say that they don't work, that they make you sick, that there's problems with it. But I don't take a position on that, and CHD doesn't take a position. What I, the thing that offends me is that you're not allowed to debate those things. Why can't we, why don't we see somebody on CNN who says, I don't believe masks work and here's why, and somebody else who says, you know, they do work and we should mandate them or have them, and let's hear the argument. Let's hear the argument on the lockdowns. Why are there no economists on CNN who says, yeah, you may save 200 thousand people who are going to die from COVID, maybe, but you're going to kill 400,000 from disrupting the supply chains, from medication, from deferred medical treatment, from, you know, bankruptcies, and here's the cause. We can all see it. Normally, I've sued government agencies for 40 years for not going through due process. So a government agency tries to give a permit to an oil company to dump in the Hudson River. And I say, no, you can't do that unless you go through notice and comment rulemaking. You have to post the rule publicly so everybody can read it. You have to do an environmental impact or regulatory impact statement that tells the justification for the rule. So all the scientific studies that you're relying on that justify that rule. And you have to have a public hearing. You have to have a comment period where the public can come out and comment on it and say, wait a minute, if you do that, you're going to close down my restaurant and every restaurant in my town, and here's a different way to do it where you can tweak the rule to get what you want without destroying all these businesses. But there's a debate, and there's back and forth. 
And you have an administrative hearing, which is just like a trial, where they bring all of their experts in to say, you know, here's why we need this rule, and we, the people who oppose it, can bring their own experts in. And then they do direct examination and cross-examination, and then there's a recommendation, and the rule gets passed. None of that happened. We were just told, you do what you're told. Mass work, anybody who says they don't is unpatriotic, is evil, is trying to pass disease, is inconsiderate and selfish, and they need to be shut up and shut down and not listened to. And that's not American. It's it's not due process. It's not the way we work in this country. And what I think people are really uncomfortable with, I don't think, you know, some of these people are selfish, but I think the vast majority of people who are out there with questions who are protesting are protesting because they're very uneasy about this kind of totalitarian, authoritarian control where all of the, you know, the indicia of democracy and the guarantees of civil rights are being abandoned. It's being, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny, Bob, you strike me in a, it's, it's like there's jet liners just going up and down a, a jetway. And you you remind me of like a, someone who's like, but what about due process? You're like standing yeah. there waving. And that's what a lot of people like, I think, you know, um, you grow up, you hear like, these are the rules of how we play in this society and it's like there's no one yeah a lot of times it feels like no one is following them anymore um so i think when you get anybody like trump who says who i think at least like is is a stern voice this is why i think one of the reasons a lot of people voted for trump because at least he was like a stern voice that was different than the status quo i think a lot of people wanted i would have elected a fucking cookie i would have voted a chocolate chip cookie in the office i was so i'm so tired of politics in my life like i just felt i just felt like if it started to feel like and i'm just an everyday guy like i don't know that much but it started to feel like everything's been bought and sold like there you know there's no one standing up for like just the guy who goes to work and works hard it doesn't mean anything um you know there's no borders people that are going to fight for the military doesn't mean everything started to feel like it didn't mean anything you know um i don't know i'm kind of rambling here a little bit no but, I, I mean i i agree i agree with but you it started that. to feel like uh i don't know uh, and so, it, and, it, and and it's not only that the government is no longer like working for us and you know going through the process of due process and allowing debate but they're also have this extraordinary capacity now to censor the press yeah my instagram has been shut down and it's not because i said anything that was untrue it's because i said things that challenge pharmaceutical products that criticize pharmaceutical products and challenge government policies and say said wait a minute that policy does not make sense to me for this reason. Yeah, they you cannot show me a single time on my Instagram that I put something up there that wasn't true. Yeah, and yet it's been frozen. Well, and you know, you're just asking people to hey, look, let's can we look at this? Like, no, there's no, and it, it, it's definitely like that, especially like working in Hollywood and, and that sort of thing, where it's like if you even raise your hand and say, but what about? this like what about these people like why is uh racism always blamed on white people if you even try to bring up a conversation i'm not trying to get into racism or anything but about anything but what about this like what about mass everybody just immediately just you can't even 
ask a question. The, the minute you ask a question, you are silenced, it feels like. Um, and, and yeah, it just know, starts to feel kind of scary. One other thing about mass is that if you look at the history of totalitarian regimes, they, what they always do, whether you know it was Anna Franco or or Mussolini or Hitler or Stalin or any you know or Papa Doc, um, they all do the same thing, which is to try to crush culture and to crush any evidence of self-expression. So um, when Hitler and Stalin came in, they killed all the artists who did not agree with a certain paradigm, with a paradigm that was consistent with their ideology. They killed the poets, they killed the intellectuals, they killed anybody yeah. who was, you know, the, the comedians. They, they have to get rid of them because that is self-expression. And what is the ultimate vector for self-expression? It's your facial expressions. Yeah. And, the, you know, a mask... Um, Putting on a mask and not allowing human beings to communicate to each other. And, you know, we have hundreds of muscles in our face. And they were evolved to communicate in subtle and beautiful ways to people with very, you know, um, nuanced changes in expression. Oh, and you put that on people. And that's why, you know, with theocratic regimes, the most tyrannical regimes in the world, like Saudi Arabia, or women go to jail they cover for, them up. for driving a car. They tell women, you are chattels, you are property, you are commodities, and we don't want you to even show your facial expression, so put on that burqa. And now I feel like, you know, we've all been told to put on the burqa, strap it on, be obedient, and what is the purpose of that? In many cases, I think, in the minds of some people, it is a placeholder for the vaccine. Hey, you're going to keep that on because the real money, they put already $18 billion into the vaccines. The, the Pentagon, we just got a secret contract from the Pentagon for Moderna, with Moderna. Who is we? Well, my group, Children's Health Defense. Okay. And we were, we were able to get this. They sent us heavily redacted the contracts between Moderna and NIH and then a heavily redacted Pentagon contract. But even from that contract, which you can look at on my Instagram, you know, um, says that Moderna at the Pentagon commits if Moderna gets emergency use authorization, which is completely in Tony Fauci's hands, that the Pentagon commits to giving $9 billion to Moderna, half of which goes to Tony Fauci's agency, to buy 200, 200 million, um, uh, or five, 500 million doses of the vaccine. So, so that's two doses for every man, woman, and child in this country, and it's going to the Pentagon, which is the military, which is scary. Yeah. So, you know, there's so much money involved here, and the masks are really like a placeholder. They're like, they're a way of, it feels like. Oh, it feels like. Uh, somebody saying to us, you keep that freaking mask on your face until you get your vaccine, and then we'll let you take it off. But until then, you keep it on, and it's like a hostage taking. Oh, and it feels like you, you keep know? your mouth shut. It's hard to relate to others yeah. with my mask on, even like it doesn't, I feel like I'm, uh, even if I'm in a room with somebody, it feels like I'm not in the room with them. Yeah. There's a lot of... uh there's a lot of different things there. And it's interesting because you talk about, you know, so many things where we don't get proof 
we don't get access to the proof of the studies. But with the mask, I feel like we've it's obvious that we've we get there's a lot of proof that we get as individuals like that that it just doesn't feel very human, you know? It doesn't feel very uh it I don't feel like a human being with that thing on. Yeah. You know. And that's a cost. Yeah. If you head on over to theovon.com right now, you'll notice that our website has been recently revamped, remodeled, redone. And it's been done really well. There has never been a better time to step up your web game. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a game-changing service by Modify.com that rivals any other option on the market today. Modify provides subscription-based professional web design for the cost of your old cable bill. Look, my, my experience has been great. We have a great site. We have people available constantly to help us adjust it. There was one price, no setup fee. No setup fee. That's right, Modify literally just finished our new site. It was effortless. The turnaround was swift. It was too good to be true. Modify's last website plan is the best option out there for any business that doesn't want to do it themselves. It includes unlimited updates, unlimited support, easy editing tools, and and future redesigns. That's right. There's no big down payment. Modify's last website is only $249 to start and $249 a month, and they do 95% of the work for you. That's right. Get the relief of an evergreen website with the convenience of having a professional design team assigned to your account to handle all your ongoing website needs. You can check it out. Go to modify, M-O-D-I-P-H-Y dot com slash Theo to schedule your free demo today. That's M-O-D-I-P-H-Y dot com slash Theo. These guys don't F around, baby gang. You know that. And, you, you know, somebody said when I was in Europe, um, you know, and I didn't have a mask on, I spoke to this big crowd in Berlin and there was an NBC group there that said to me, you know, why aren't you wearing a mask? Aren't you scared? And I said, I'm more scared of censorship than I am of COVID. And that may sound insensitive because people are dying of so. COVID. But people died in the American Revolution, too. And they died in the American Revolution to preserve our constitutional rights and our freedoms. And at some point, we have to say, you know, what kind of nation are we? Are we, are we the land of the free and the home of the brave? Or are we, you know, a land where if somebody... You know, where somebody is pointing to something and saying, be scared, keep yourself in a constant state of fear so that we can, you know, so we can do some business stuff. Right. That, Wait till we tell you what's next yeah, and then you'll be ready. You Wait till we get the sponsorship money and then we'll tell you exactly what you need next. Yeah. Why is it? So, why when you say that, <laughs> to me, it sounds very normal, but I'm starting to get this weird acclimation to stuff like that sounding outrageous, right? It, and I know that it doesn't in, in my in my immediacy, but when I start factoring it into like, okay, well, if I say those things, what are people going to think? Um I think you're going to get a lot of sort of hate, you know, on this podcast. But I don't know. Oh, I don't think that we will. If, Most audiences are pretty open to things. They, they they can watch someone and see that, okay, this is a person who has a, a point of view. This isn't a vile person. This isn't a bad creature. They might and also, not only might they agree with your point of view, but also they can just hear it. I think most people can still hear things pretty regularly. I think a lot of people, like you said, it's just become a lot of fear. You know, um, I'm just of a different ilk, I guess, where it's like, 
I don't know. Just, I don't know, man. I feel like I can't say what I'm trying to say right now, but everything, they just make you feel so crazy if you think anything different. And you can't share it on Twitter. Twitter is totally, you can't even ask a question on Twitter without being... Well, they have all, you know, they have a whole infrastructure of trolls and, you know, response um, uh, that is just... You know, it's all pharma paid for and it's hateful and all of that. But, you know, there's also a lot of people who just, you know, and particularly in my party, which is the Democratic Party, that see mass as a, as a symbol of moral rectitude and, um, you know, they believe it. And I, my, you know, my orientation is science. I've been, you know, I've been litigating on science for 30 years and, or 40 years and, and, you know, like I tried, was part of the trial team on the Monsanto case. My wife came to to watch me. And, uh, oh, Monsanto's from Crops, huh? Yeah, they, and Roundup, you know, Roundup. Oh, dude, is, hell yeah, dude. We used I, to, uh, yeah, I got freaking a bunch of fertilizer dumped on me one time and it burned a lot of my skin. Yeah, well, you need a good lawyer, man. <laughs> I should have <laughs> had one then, bro. It was crazy, so, dude. It was a uh, different but, time, though. Oh, we tried the, the three Monsanto cases that, you know, ultimately brought down the company. And my wife, who you know, Cheryl mm -hmm. Hines, came to the trial and she was, you know, we she was there on a day when Monsanto's um, Harvard experts were on the stand and they were so convincing and persuasive that you know that, that roundup was completely safe and she said to me well you know why are we even here these guys know what they're talking about they're educated they have credentials and they're utterly convincing and then the next day she heard our guys and she was like well i was I, that guy from ours was totally full of crap oh you know the idea that the, the idea that and that we can trust an expert to tell us what's good for us. Every trial I've ever been involved with, there's an expert on both, both sides. sides. And they're both equally convincing. And that's why you need the debate. Yeah. That's why, you know, saying Tony Fauci, that's why people say, I want a second opinion. Yeah. He's a doctor. He hasn't treated patients for 50 years. He's a doctor, but he doesn't know anything about economics. He cannot tell you how many people are dying of of um, of unemployment. There are studies from the 1980s. There's a famous study in 1982. In the 1980s, there was these huge downsizing and layoffs that were occurring in our country. And there was a whole cottage industry, a whole school of economics that grew up to see what happens to people when they get unemployed. And there's one very famous study. It's, it's cited hundreds of times in the literature that said that for every additional one point in unemployment, there's 37,000 Americans die. Yeah. 9,000 9, of them die of heart attacks, 900 from suicide, and so on and so on. Hypertension, diabetes, all these, oh, they lose their health care, all of these bad things, there's a cascade of bad things happen. Our population was about half, so you have to double that. And say for every point in unemployment, we're going to lose maybe 60,000 dead that otherwise would not have died. And are we saving more lives? Are we killing more people with the quarantine than we are killing with COVID? That's a great question. Nobody has done that assessment. And that's the weird thing is people say, listen to the experts. But Anthony Fauci is not an expert on deaths from unemployment. 
And, you know, and when, when Britain did this study, Britain said in the five weeks in April and May, there were 30,000 excess deaths in elderly facilities, which they call nursing homes in Britain. But only 10,000 of them had COVID. 20,000 of them died from isolation. Oh, yeah. I'm not shocked. I, I mean, I noticed even just in my own, like, you know, going to 12-step and going to recovery and not being able to have those meetings and not being able to. Oh, it's, I mean, the addiction rates are. I cannot they, even imagine, bro. Right. I cannot even imagine how, like. And well, none, you and I know people yeah, who have gone out and died. Yeah. You know, during this, who are people who couldn't go to our meetings. You know, and yeah, it's a lot of people's lively and that, that and that's a lot of people. And there's no talk like there's just no talk about the human effect of some of this. It feels like sometimes it's just about this weird medical effect um, yeah. or medical fear, which kind of it's not shocking. Then if big if if big pharma and that money is is so slowly seeped its arms all the way in everything that at the very pinnacle of discussion the only thing people are concerned about the media is concerned about is the medical effects of it and no longer the human effects of it yeah, i mean why it doesn't almost, anderson cooper ever not once had an economist on to say a pussy bro i don't know bro <laughs> you know i mean that's just my thought bro but you know what I'm saying? I'll put side control on that dude in a heartbeat, but that's just me, you know? Um, I don't know, though. I don't know. Here's a question right here from a young man who's probably about to die of something. Yeah. Well, of a car accident, yeah, yeah, maybe. He's video at the same time. No, I'm just joking. Thank you for, uh, for sending in the video. We can't hear it out here, Nick, I don't think. Uh, I had a question in the meantime. Um, uh, so... You said how the the Pfizer vaccination right now doesn't uh, you can still spread COVID. With, yeah, with apparent. the so so. Do you see a world where this they push forward with this? You can still spread it, but it supposedly makes you healthy. But then we still have to keep the masks on, even yeah. What you said about the facial expressions that was like terrifying, but it seems like the way they're kind of marketing it right now, oh, you can still spread it. We may still even... Yeah, I mean, I, it's going to be really... You know, we really have to be utterly under hypnosis for them to be able to tell us to take this vaccine when the whole point of the vaccine is the only three points. Because we don't care if you get a fever or a chill. Nobody cares about that. What we care is, do you die? Right. You have to get hospitalized, and does it do you transmit the disease to others? Right. Well, here's a vaccine that doesn't prevent any of those things, as far as we know. How can they now mandate that people get that? It's kind of it's a it's really a complete um, disconnect. It is a it's 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 a it's cognitive dissonance, where people will say. Um, you know, somehow this is a life-saving medication because it prevents you from coughing. And it does nothing about anything to do with this virus that anybody cares about. But then why would everyone, why would they agree to that then? Why would they? Uh, I, you know, listen, they'll, 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 what they'll do is, in my view, is they'll mandate it for activities so that you can't go to a ball game that you can't if you're a nurse they'll do they'll do like nurses doctors people who work in nursing homes first who, who will lose their job 
firefighters, first responders, and then they'll do the University of California. The University of California just mandated a flu shot. There is no flu this year. And flu shots, we know from the literature, increase your chance of getting COVID. The Pentagon did a study in January that where they gave, you know, placebo group of soldiers and they gave the flu vaccine. And the soldiers who got the flu vaccine were 36% more likely to get COVID. A coronavirus, not coronavirus 19, but a coronavirus. But there are many, many, many other studies and people should go to Children's Health Defense website, my website. There's a, there's a, you can look up letter to Sanjay Gupta, which is a letter I wrote to Sanjay Gupta, which outlines all of these studies that show that if you get a flu shot, you are much more likely to get coronavirus or some other upper respiratory viral infection. It wrecks your immune system. And yet, the University of California mandated it. We sued them. We lost that lawsuit because the judge said, "Well, you know, um, I'm not going to. I'm not going to arbitrate medicine. Somebody's already made that decision." Uh, that, that's the problem. Is that? And then they're going to tell you you can't go to a ball game, you can't go to a bar, you can't go to a movie unless you get the vaccine. But so, back to that Berkeley, back to the University of California case. Does that is that? But does that shot do more good than it does bad? Um, the flu shot does much more. Listen, people should not listen to me. And I always tell people this, you need to look at the science, but I can tell you what the science says, and then you should check on this. You can go to my website, to the Children's Health Defense website, look up my letter to Sanjay Gupta, and I go through because there's been three major studies on, which are called meta-reviews, which means there are, there are hundreds and hundreds of studies on the flu shot on mm -hmm. various aspects. Does it prevent hospitalization in the elderly? Does it cause injuries in, in babies when it's, you know, when it, with maternal flu shots, et cetera. So there's hundreds of questions. There's hundreds and hundreds of studies. And there are three meta-reviews. A meta-review is when a group of scientists go out and says, we're going to look at every study that's ever been done mm -hmm. and tell you what the state of the science is right now on these questions. So the meta-reviews have been done, two of them by the Cochrane Collaboration, which is the ultimate arbiter for pharmaceuticals. It's 30,000 scientists who don't take pharmaceutical money and the top scientists in the world recognized by it. The leader of them is a guy called Thomas Jefferson. He's a founder and he's very, very famous oh, yeah, British, British scientist. He's not the president. He's a, the, he's a British scientist. And then the other was by the British Medical Journal. And here's what they said. You have to give 100 flu shots to prevent one case of the flu. There's no evidence at, at flu shots. To one person, you mean? To, to prevent one case. Okay. So you have to, so you have to give a hundred shots to prevent one case of the flu. You're only preventing a case. There's no evidence that the flu shot prevents any hospitalizations or any deaths. In fact, since they started giving the flu shot to elderly people, the death rate has grown up dramatically. A flu shot is not preventing deaths in the elderly. If you get a flu shot, you are you will not get you're less likely to get the flu shot of that strain of flu, but you're five times more likely to get a non-flu infection, and that your 
six times more likely to transmit the flu. So mm. the flu shot does not prevent you from transmitting it. So that's what the flu shot. And we've had the flu shot for 90 years. So the COVID thing, the, the so, COVID almost sounds like it'd be just another flu shot almost. That's what it's, and that's what I've said from the beginning. We've had a flu shot for 90 years and that's the best they can do. And COVID is much more it's much more difficult to develop a coronavirus vaccine. And one of the problems that's unique to coronavirus vaccine in the past is the coronavirus vaccines are known to wreck your immune system. They've done, and it's a, it's a phenomena that is known as pathogenic priming. Um, and what they found is they give the coronavirus vaccine to ferrets, for example, in mm-hmm. 2014, Good. The ferrets developed a, a very good antibody response. And ferrets, you mean the animals? Yeah, and the ferrets, they use ferrets because ferrets are the, are the closest analogy to human beings when it comes to upper respiratory viral infections. Really? Yes, and so that's what they, they always use ferrets. They're the, disgusting, too. And the, Sorry, I know you love animals, but they pissed on me at my buddy fucking Curtis's house, and that shit will never go away, man. But he let them out also, and he shouldn't PTSD have. from that. Oh, dude, it was, they are just wild. Anyway, go on. I'm sorry. So, I, anyway, they gave it to the ferrets. The ferrets got a very good antibody response, but then when the ferrets were exposed to the wild coronavirus, they all died. I see what you're saying. So it's pathogen priming. It's like it, it'll like uh, it'll help you to that one specific thing, but then when something else comes along, yeah. it makes you less likely to be able to defend yourself exactly. against it. Exactly. Wow. Here's a question right here from a young man. Hello, Mr. Kennedy. It's great seeing you top it up with uh, Theo here. Um, I know you're really concerned about children's safety. I'm just kind of wondering what are the top three to five, um, you know, areas of concern. You know, chemicals, etc. Uh, influencing uh, raising kids right now. All right, thanks. Bye. Well, you know, and that's a good question. There's a we know that there's been a dramatic um, explosion of chronic disease in our children. So, in 1940, six percent of Americans had chronic disease. By chronic disease, I mean autoimmune disease is one category. Allergic disease is um, obesity also is in there, and then neurodevelopmental diseases. And in 1946, 6% of Americans had chronic disease. By 1986, 12.8% had chronic disease. This is according to HHS studies. Mm-hmm. So it had doubled. And, you know, people and the vaccine schedule had gone from three during that period to 11. And then in 2006, HHS studied the issue again and found that 54% of Americans have chronic disease, American children. A dramatic lot. More than half our kids and are. HHS is what? The Health and Human Services. That is the kind of the Uber agency in which CDC, FDA, and NIH are housed. Okay. Oh, and they did the study. Um, and oh, the question is, what is causing this explosion in chronic disease? We know it's not genes because genes do not cause epidemics. They don't cause sudden epidemics. Genes uh, can provide a vulnerability. Uh, you need an environmental toxin. And there's a scientist called Phil Landrigan mm-hmm. who looked at all of the possible suspects. And he came up with, I think, about 11 and one of those is, um, you know, is, pest, is glyphosate pesticides, which follow the, the, the timeline. Oh, yeah. 
um, neonicotinoid pesticides, which again follow the same timeline. Um, PFOAs, which is a flame retardant that became, it's in children's pajamas and it's in, you know, it's in masks, in fact, um, uh, that are made by 3M. So we're breathing that, you know, which is a carcinogen. Um, and then uh, EMFs, which are basically cell phones and, and then vaccines. And those are the primary culprits. And it would be very easy for the government there's a, there's a narrow view. I mean, one of the other ones that's on that list is ultrasound mm-hmm. because ultrasound, you know, followed the timeline and it's ubiquitous. It's in every hospital and it's all over the world and all these babies are getting it. So it has to be a suspect. Oh, I understand that for a baby. If I'm a baby yeah. and I hear something like that, I'd be... I don't believe it, but I don't know much about it. I I believe that the you know the real culprits are the vaccines. I think the pesticide. I listen. Our kids are walking are swimming around in a toxic soup today, so their their immune systems are under constant assault. And what happens is that a lot of those substances open up the blood brain barrier, so a lot of the toxics that normally your body could excrete are ending up going into their brains and, you know, you're getting all of these neurodevelopmental effects. And, you know, and it's probably, you know, you also have fluoride in drinking water. You have dental amalgams, which are, you know, mercury. And so there's all these different toxins. But I would say kind of the, the um, that I'm most worried about the ones which are the, the EMFs from cell phones and from the towers, 5G, I think it's going to be really a catastrophe. Because we don't know the long-term effects of that. No, and and there are literally tens of thousands of studies that show that it, including a $30 million NIH study that was just released that show that, you know, they cause cancer, they cause... um, Oh, yeah. They animals hate it. Cell damage, and you know, and they cause brain injuries. They change your EEGs. Kids who put a cell phone to their head for two minutes, their EEGs do not um, return to normal for twelve hours. And it's all around us right now. So five G is really, I think, a catastrophe. Um, yeah, we don't know the long term effects of these waves going through our body. No. Really. Damn, it's microwaves. Uh, we're gonna turn. I'm gonna turn into a fucking snail, Bobby. Uh, I don't. I don't mean to depress you. No, Theo. it's okay. Look, I knew it was coming. Here's the thing. I know every time I answer my phone that it's coming. I know when I wake up in the morning after I do yoga or after I meditate. Once I start to reach for that phone, there's no denying that there's a ping, which I now call it ironically, that goes off inside of my head and in my spirit that yeah. tells me it's not a good thing to do. Well, you know what? There's people. First of all, I never put this cell phone next to my head. Um, but I always hold it, put it on speaker, and hold it away. Um, but and I, I have one room in my house that's armored, so there's no EMFs in there. And I sleep in that room. And I, you know, there's people who now will do that. You have to make sure because it's a predatory industry. Oh, that's for the elite, right there. Armored bedroom. Right. Well, it's you know they paint it with carbon. And the thing is, we're, you know, my group, Children's Health Defense, is fighting a lawsuit in front of FCC. So we have a woman who's an Israeli uh, attorney. She used to be, she used to work for the Israeli Defense Forces and their intelligence unit. She was doing all of the, she was completely surrounded by cyber warfare, electronic equipment all day, and she was fine with it. And then one day, it just leveled her. And mm. from then on, anytime she gets even near the cell phone, she gets sick. Damn. 
she came into my house. This is why I did it, okay? Because I got seven kids. And she came into my house. Shit, I think you had six kids when this podcast well, started. Well, I did, but, you know, I'm married, Cheryl, and she has a kid. So she has more. No, no, you do. Yeah, yeah you, she, she had, does. So, I met her kid. Beautiful kid. So, um, anyway, she came to my house, and she said, you have, and she's so sensitive to it. She can tell different parts of the house and different wow. regions of each room where I have. But, and the other thing is I can check her story because I got a meter. She got gave me the meter. And then she said, follow me around and I will tell you where it's hot, where Damn. you dirt like, and she can go to any part of my house and say, this is like killing me right here. And I'll turn on it on the meter and it goes off the chart. She came to my bedroom and it was just, you know, it was wild, dirty electricity everywhere and particularly next to the head of my bed. And I said, so at that point I was like, okay, what is it gonna cause? Let's do, do it. This. And so Let's we bunker put up. one room um, where, you know, where there's not, a, and I go in that room and I can sleep at night. Yeah. And I, you know, I go right to sleep and I have never been able to sleep in my life. I've mm. kicked the sheets for hours. And well, look, uh, it's hard to sleep when there's a lot to defend out there, you know? <laughs> it really is, though. When you have a lot in your soul to defend. What was that question that came up from that young lady, Nick? Okay. Let's answer the one that came up with that young, who he had the child and he said, what would you do? That first one you showed me when I walked in, if that's okay. Um, the guy who looked like he was almost, was he from Salt Lake? Hey Theo, this is Randy Rally from Salt Lake City, Utah. Hey, I just had a question for Robert Kennedy. I just wanted to know, I've, I've heard him say that there are no safe vaccines out there. So if he had a newborn right now, would he vaccinate that child? Would he be selective about the vaccines that uh, he gives that child? Or would he just uh, forego any vaccines at all? I appreciate the input. I appreciate the uh, information. And love your show, man. Gang, gang. Gang, bro. Um, that's a good yeah, question. So, you, I, you know, I don't give people advice on what to do because I'm not a doctor. But I would tell you what I would do. I fully vaccinated all my kids. And and I also took the flu vaccine every year, you know, and you know, this thing I got in my voice, which is called spasmodic dystonia. I was actually reading, I'm doing some litigation against the companies and part of it, I had to look at all the side effects. And for the first time about a month ago, I was looking through, you know, when you look at the side effects that they publish on the manufacturer's insert of the vaccine, they're, you know, they're, some of them are pages long and they'll have, you know, like 60 or 70 injuries. And one of the top ones of the flu vaccine was spasmodic dystonia, which is what I got. And I was taking a flu vaccine every year at that point. And for years, doctors have said to me, what trauma did you do? Because you need a trauma to, to trigger this. I got this when I was 42. Wow. And so for the first time, it occurred to me that this might be a vaccine injury. My kids are all healthy, robust. Tall athletic. even. A couple of them boys are pretty tall. Huh? Yeah. They're, they're, uh, Jesus. I, I have one that's uh, one kid you barely a couple see that are six foot five. Barely see the one kid. <laughs> and, um, uh, but, you know, they have uh, severe peanut allergies. We have asthma. We have um, ADHD. We have all of the you know, the stuff that is associated with that generation born after 1989, the vaccine generation. So I, here's what I would, will tell you. There's 
I would never, I, if I could go back, I would um, unvaccinate all my kids because I think they did suffer injuries. Um, I would never give a kid a vaccine that had aluminum or mercury in it. So some of the flu vaccines have mercury still about 13%. Um, and then there's a lot of the vaccines that have aluminum, and I would really stay away from those. The problem is that none of the vaccines are safety tested. So there's none of them where you can say that this vaccine is going to avert more problems than it's causing. I would do your own research, look at the ingredients of the vaccine and ask yourself if you want those things in your child's body mm -hmm. and look at the side effects and ask yourself, do I want to take this risk? And remember this, and the according to HHS, fewer than 1% of vaccine injuries are reported. So you have to multiply what you see on that list by 100. Because we don't know that there are injuries from it. Because people don't know, like, my, I never reported my kids uh, on food allergies as vaccine injuries, right. but now I recognize that, of course, that's what they are. Right. And people, you know, the doctors are reluctant to report them because if you, let's say you get your shots, the doctor said that it's going to be good for your, your child. And your child two days later or a week later gets a seizure or gets SIDS or something else. And you go back and say, could it have been the vaccines? Doctor will say absolutely not because he doesn't know. He, there's no there's no course in medical school on vaccine injury. It's not taught. They're wow. just taught the vaccines are all good. They never hurt anybody, and you know they they're necessary. Well, will they be taught though down the road? Because I mean, or, or does does Big Pharma influence like what's taught at the school oh, level yeah, as well? The, uh, Big Pharma owns the journals and it owns the medical schools because the medical schools. Their funding is coming from those pharmaceutical companies because they, what they, the way it works, there's researchers who are the, the teachers at that medical school. Are A lot of them are running clinical trials for the pharmaceutical companies. That's how they make their side income. Right. And the medical school, so the pharmaceutical company will say, pay that doctor, let's say $20,000 a patient, you know, for the, the people that he's experimenting on. Or new medication, and um, the medical school takes half of that money as a, as a you know as a skims half of that money off. Plus, if the if that product that that doctor is working on actually makes it to market, the medical school then can collect royalties on it. The medical schools are making billions of dollars from these companies and if the medical school does something that the company doesn't like the company stops giving it business mm. and of so they, and so they the, you know the companies the pharmaceutical companies are, can dictate virtually every aspect of you know of what happens at that medical school including the curriculum it's money man it's the same as with entertainment industry it's like you know, if they don't like what you have to say sometimes or what you're thinking, then they they don't go your direction. You know, it's like I don't know. There's like any contrary anything that's contrarian. I feel like uh, it seems suddenly becomes conspiracy these days. Um, <laughs> does that make yeah. any sense or no? Yeah. That's, uh, you know, I mean, that, you know, it's the way, you know, some of my favorite it's a way to attack are... any any 
any inconvenient truth by just saying that it's a, a conspiracy theory. Yeah, and but it's like the number one thing people go to now. Look at this conspiracy theorist, you know. Yeah. Like I have a, my, I had a comedy special I did a few years ago that came out on Netflix, and they, um, just because of my accent and stuff, and I and I have like this. Uh, the somebody wrote an article and it was like, if Trump hasn't found his favorite comedian, he'll love this guy. Like, and it was right during the election, like around that time, and it just like fucking broke my heart because like I worked so hard, like twelve years to get this comedy put together, and it's a sarcasm. It's all sarcasm. And then you get to this moment and then somebody just labels you one way just because they're fucking dumb and don't want to be, you don't want to think or, you know, recognize. It just, I don't know. That shit just fucking burns me sometimes, man. How immediately somebody can see you. Oh, or they, you know, like they label call me you. anti-vax. Yeah, but you're not. You're just for safety vax. And every time I say I'm not <laughs> anti-vaccine, <laughs> I mean, I was, listen, I've been try, trying to get mercury out of fish well, my mom for made 40 me put- years and nobody calls me anti-fish. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I want to get the poison out of the vaccines. I'm not any. It's like I want. I want seatbelts and automobiles. Yeah. It doesn't mean I'm against cars. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But that it's a way to marginalize you. It's a way to vilify you. It's a way to to justify censoring you by putting you in that category. He's anti-vax. He's crazy. Don't listen to him. Don't let him on. None of these guys will let me on TV. You know, Anderson Cooper. Um, there's no way in the world they would ever allow me on network TV. And make I'm your own not, channel. What? You should well, make yeah, your own tell channel. Tell me how to do that. Oh, I think, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I feel like you could do it easily. I think, well, it's funny because when I, you were coming in, two people who I love, my mom being one, she said, Theo, this is wonderful. His group, the Children's Vaccine Health Defense, has a great email newsletter I uh, read it all the time. It's called The Defender. Yep, called The Defender. He has some libertarian views. I'm so happy to have him, that you get to have him. And then I said, well, make a video. She said, I can't. I'm working. But I would ask him the impetus behind the formation of the children's health defense other than his standing up for the underdog. Is that a Yeah, question? I mean, you know, the children's health defense, we do all of the issues that I was talking about. We do fluoride. We do um, pesticides. Um you know, we did Roundup, uh, and then we, you know, we we do vaccines. And any exposure to children, well, our issue is why is acceptable that 54% of our kids are sick? We should have 6% top that are sick. That's what the background rate is. And why are we all walking around saying this is normal? Yeah. You know, why is it when I was a kid that there were no kids with autism? They say one in 10,000, but I've never met anybody who's 66 with full-blown autism. Yeah, damn, hell no, dude. It's a you new don't thing. see people. We had the I mean, tism, they listen, called it by us, the tism, when well, I was growing up. Yeah, well, we didn't have it. We didn't know. Nobody knew it. <laughs> nobody knew why even or ever heard the word autism until 1988. That's when Rain Man came out, right? Oh, yeah, he had but, it. Yeah, but it wasn't real. It's not what they call full-blown autism. It's more Asperger's syndrome. It's, yeah, he had you know, Asperger's. That's a good point. Right. Because you, can, uh, you can't gamble on autism. Full-blown autism is nonverbal, non-toilet train, um, head-banging, stimming, horrible gut aches, and that's half of the people who have it, so it's a million people. And you don't see, you will never see somebody my age, 66, walking around the mall, a man with diapers on and a football helmet and banging his head nonverbal, 
stemming and engaging in these uh, stereotypical behaviors. They don't exist. Trump sometimes and they're you see not on locked somewhere because yeah. there's no place to put them. That's a good point. And, I, and by the way, I was raised on the spear tip of the movement for rights and care for people with intellectual disabilities. My aunt, you know, Shriver's, my godmother founded Special Olympics. My cousin founded Best Buddies. I worked in the Special Olympics when it was still called Camp Shriver. Like um, Maria Shriver? Yeah, she's right. Maria's mom. Maria's my cousin. Oh, wow. Uh, you uh, met Arnold Schwarzenegger before? Yeah, he's my cousin-in-law, of course. Yeah, that's crazy, bro. <laughs> that's crazy. I remember seeing True Lies. Remember that movie? I haven't seen Pretty good. Yeah. Um, let me think of one more question. Do we have any, any other good video questions that come in? Nick has one. Yeah, uh, so you talked about how, like, Tony Fauci, he doesn't make it 50 years in the industry without, uh, like, holding water for the companies. Who are some, like, current politicians, senators, or governors that you see out there who, like, are really speaking truth and that are someone to listen to that aren't being – are there any? that you you feel like are somewhat well you know there's only one guy in congress at this point who is who has stood up and he's a republican congressman from florida named bill buzzy and he is you know he is fantastic and he understands he you know but he's been he's been completely isolated by his own party by the republicans in congress they won't let him near any committees and there, you know, there's a the, the senior scientist for CDC, a guy called uh, Bill, uh, Bill Thompson, Dr. Bill Thompson, who's at CDC today, and he's been there for 20 years. In 2014, he came forward and he said, "We've been lying to the public about autism." We he he's the scientist who is the lead author on virtually every study on autism, and he said, "We've been destroying the evidence, the data, when it shows that children are getting autism from vaccines." And in fact, on the key study, which is called, uh, which is a study published in Pediatrics in 2004, and it's called the DeStefano study. He was one of the five co-authors, and the their boss, Frank DeStefano, when they found out that black boys who got the MMR vaccine on time had 360% greater chance of getting autism than, than children who didn't get it on time. And the five or the four co-authors were ordered by DeStefano to bring all the evidence on black boys into a conference room at CDC and then to destroy the evidence. Wow in big garbage cans. And this scientist um, came forward. He tried to commit suicide. And he came forward, hired an attorney, and he said, I want to be subpoenaed to Congress to talk about what's happening in my agency. Remember, he's still at CDC. This is not a disgruntled employee. It's a guy who sticks to his story. He was transferred out of that division, the vaccine branch, into another division. and But otherwise, they leave him alone. And they gave him a $25,000 raise. You know, they don't want him to leave because when he leaves, he's going to talk. And Bill Posey, for the last six years, has been trying to subpoena him in front of the committee. And I talked to um, uh, to Jason Chaffetz, who is the head of the Government Oversight Committee, a Republican from Utah. He promised to subpoena Thompson, and then he wouldn't do it. I talked to um, Trey Gowdy, who replaced him. He wouldn't do it. I talked to Daryl Issa, who I think is a congressman from this district. And Daryl Issa 
promised to hold hearings and then quit. I, I said to him after he quit, I said, I called him. And I said, why did you do that? And he said, because I got calls from the Speaker of the House and the head of our party saying that if I conducted those hearings, not only would I lose my chairmanship, but I would be thrown off the committee. Hmm. And so, you know, the pressure they're getting from the, not just the Democratic Party, which is terrible on this issue, but the Republican Party, they've all been bought off. Oh, and that's a sad thing. Was did was there any was there ever a chance that Trump was like this this alternate piece that could have brought down the whole system? Yes. And you know when I first met, I because I wanted Trump and Bernie to have to be on the same ticket. That's what I wanted. <laughs> because then I thought, uh, why do vi- why do you just get to pick your vice president? Why don't you have to? Why don't you yeah, have? That's what they used to do. It was a separate election for was vice it really? President. Yeah. Yeah, because then why don't you have a different type of person as your vice president? Then you have to argue about everything, you know? Yeah. It seemed easy to just pick some guy. Well, that's not how we do it. So, But doesn't the president just pick the vice president? He picks them, yeah. Well, they they have to be nominated by the party. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, uh, but anyway, going back to that. Um, yeah, what I think a lot of people thought that Trump was going to be, okay, there's this huge cyst, this clock that's running, and I'm going to throw this fucking wrench into it and watch it crumble. Was that ever a possibility? Uh, Yeah, I think it it was a possibility for a short time. But I think what I heard was that after we we left, um, that... There were people within the administration, including Hope Hill, Kellyanne Conway, and I think um, one of their husbands is a pharmaceutical lobbyist, and um, and Rens Priebus, who had just told him you can't do it, and then they took the money from Pfizer, and you know we were alive for a while through. We were alive from January when, when he takes the oath of office through March. And everybody in the agencies was terrified of us. We were going to the agencies and we were questioning them and making presentations yeah. and having the meetings boys with Fauci and with, with Francis, yeah. Francis Collins. And then at one point in mid-March, you know, the lobbyists came in, Azar and Gottlieb and all those guys came in and we got a note from Francis Collins just basically, you know, it was like, a big bird, like, you know, we don't have to listen to you anymore. So stop Damn. talking to us. And now, and then the, the white house went dark. Hmm. Do you feel like with the, with a Biden, uh, that with the new, um, president or, well, first of all, do you feel like the election was fair? Do you feel like they will have any, what do you feel like the outcome will be from that? Do you feel like well, it was fair? I think, you know, listen, they'll go through the judicial process. My feeling is that, um, that the courts are going to uphold the election. Um, I don't think, you know, I don't have any doubt about that. The, in terms of Biden's, you know, Biden has made a lot of statements that are very disheartening about, you know, mandating masks, you know, really coming down hard on the lockdown, really, you know. It's become part of the, weirdly, of the liberal ideology of just, you know, getting rid of civil rights. And, you know, religious exemptions, so all the rights, the First Amendment, the censorship, they're supporting that, you know, the religious independence, they're supporting the end of jury trials, which is, um, you know, were abolished for vaccines. Um, 
and 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 public assemblies and the right to petition politicians and all, all of these things that have been been part of the liberal tradition in Western democracy, but particularly in the United States, the the liberals, the traditional liberals, um, in my party are have just walked away from them in you know, the weirdest, sur- most surrealistic way. Now, is there any? Do I have any hopes for Biden? Um, Biden has appointed to his COVID committee a number of hacks who are just part of Fauci's network. But he also brought in David Kessler, who is the used to be the attorney general, I mean the surgeon general. And David Kessler is the one person that I think gives me hope because he is an independent thinker. Mm-hmm. He He's an enemy of pharma. He understands that, you know, that there's a problem with the vaccines. And so I think, you know, for those of people in this audience who um, want to uh, encourage that, that, you know, he's a guy that people should should write letters to and should, you know, should contact and say, express, all of us need to express hope in Kessler that a lot of people are, are hoping that he will break with the orthodoxy that I think is taking us down this dark road in our country. It's getting dark, man. Here's a beautiful young fellow right here who has something to ask you. What up, Theo? What up, Mr. Kennedy? That feels so cool to say. Uh, Matt from North Carolina here, just sitting here at work like an American. Shout out to Theo <laughs> for that hitter. Appreciate oh, yeah, it. nice Super merch, comfy. man. That's a beautiful one. Uh, so my question for Robert, personally, I'm a huge advocate and fan of uh, JFK. Uh, I'm sure he was probably the coolest uncle ever. Um, But my question is a little bit personal. Like, what are the last moments or memories or maybe your favorite moments and memories that you had of uh, Uncle Johnny? Um, Appreciate you taking the time for my question. Much respect. Gang, gang. You know, I'm sure you always get a question about your uncle, huh? Um, you know, I, listen, I, I have a lot, many, many great memories of my uncle. I've, I've, I, I mean, I think probably one of my, what did y'all eat? Did y'all eat what? Clam chowder. Did you really? <laughs> of course. We, yeah, we did eat a lot of clam chowder. Yeah, that's bad, man. That's nice. Um, but, uh, you know, Boston beans, but clam chowder. Um, hot dogs, you think? Hot dogs. Were hot dogs popular when you yeah. were a kid? Yeah, of course. Hot dogs, hamburgers. Um, I when I was I think eight or nine years old, I wrote a letter to my uncle that I still have, um, and asking him because I was worried about the environment, about pollution, mm-hmm. and I wrote him a letter um, saying that I wanted to talk to him about it, and he <laughs> he, he had me come into the Oval Office. And I spent uh, a morning with my brother the night before I caught a salamander, a big spotted salamander that come out, you know, in the spring to to of breed. Course. You know what they yeah, are, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I know what they are. Yeah, like yeah. a land snake. <laughs> so, um, and I brought him one of those. And I, my, my home had just switched from well water to municipal water. And are you upset about that? I was because the chlorine killed the salamander. And but I was in denial about about him being dead, and I brought him in a vase, 
and I uh, and came to my uncle, and he was poking him with a pen. I have these pictures too, and saying, you know, oh, I don't think he looks well. <laughs> and I was saying, no, he's just sleeping. He's okay. And then he took me out, and we released him in the rose garden fountain. Um, but he uh, he arranged ultimately for me to meet with Rachel Carson, who came to our home in Hyannisport. I mean, in in Virginia at Hickory Hill. And had dinner at our house, and um, and also with Stuart Udall, who was the Secretary of the Interior, and so that was pretty cool. But you know, he came to our house. He rode. We rode every morning. Um, horses. My dad would take us riding every morning, and my uncle sometimes would come. Um, I went to the hearings when they were um, when they had the mafia, when they had Sam Giancana. Jimmy Hoffa, um, all the big mafiosa. My dad, this is before the White House when he was still in the Senate. And I went, attended those hearings when I was a little kid and, you know, looked at all these gangsters and we sat in the front row. And um, and then, you know, so our family was a, was a very, very close family. And, um, and they landed with the helicopters every weekend. He would, after... He landed, he would go up and he would kiss my grandpa and they would talk. My grandpa had had a stroke by then and he would talk to my grandpa and tell him what happened that week. Then he would come down from the porch and he we would all pile into a golf cart that was a souped up golf, golf cart with 20 kids on it. And he would give us a ride around the compound at very fast speeds. And so, yeah, I mean, it was a- Typical know, uncle behavior, huh? Yeah. It was uh, it was a really it was a magical. Um, God, it sounds youth. like it. We used to ride behind the mosquito truck and get that free gas yeah. that would come off of it. You know yeah, when they spray for mosquitoes? The yeah, the DDT. Oh, dude, nose up, bro. We would just <laughs> literally be just biking until we couldn't even take anymore. You know, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't no, see I, a, mos- I didn't see a mosquito for so six we would, years. We would have war games behind them because it was you know that fog that stayed yeah. on the, that hugged the ground. Yeah, it was good. And uh, we thought it was good for us back yeah, then. Yeah, we sure did. Man. It was a different time. Um, battling the uh, the environment on the outside of us and on the inside of us. Uh, Bobby, thanks for coming in today. I really sure, appreciate yeah, thanks it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, anything else, Nick? Any other questions? Um, yeah, thank you so much, man. Appreciate it. Good to see you, man. Yeah, you too. Always a pleasure, man. Always, you're always welcome back. Here. Now I'm just floating on the breeze, and I feel I'm falling like these leaves. I must be cornerstone. Oh, but when I reach that ground, I'll share this peace of mind I found. I can feel it in my bones, but it's gonna take a little time. For me to set that parking brake and let myself all wind shine that light on me. I'll sit and tell you my story. Shine on me, and I will find a song. I will sing it just Heavy love.
Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Jonathan Kite, and welcome to Kite Club, a podcast where I'll be sharing thoughts on things like current events, stand-up stories, and seven ways to pleasure your partner. The answer may shock you. Sometimes I'll interview my friends. Sometimes I won't. And as always, I'll be joined by the voices in my head. You have three new voice messages. A lot of people are talking about Kite Club. I've been talking about Kite Club for so long, longer than anybody else. So great. Hi, sweetheart. Here's a deal. Anyone who doesn't listen to Kite Club is a dodgy bloody wanker. Charmaine. Oh, hi, I'll take a quarter pounder with cheese and a McFlurry. Sorry, sir, but our ice cream machine is broken. <laughs> I think Tom Hanks just butt-dialed me. Anyway, first rule of Kite Club is tell everyone about Kite Club. Second rule of Kite Club is tell everyone about Kite Club. Third rule, like and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or watch us on YouTube, yeah? And yes, don't worry, my Brad Pitt impression will get better.